0: So this morning, folks, I want to start a new series called The Thrill of Hope. And uh, let me explain to you why uh, I'm doing it and why I'm doing it now. Um, First of all, um, the obvious one is that as pastor, I feel this is from God. This is what I I spent a wee bit of time on Christmas Day evening doing. I was sitting in my mother-in-law's house. And thought, nope, Lord, we're going to go do some work here. And uh, so uh, I went out and sat in the car for a wee bit and sketched out the concepts of a couple of messages. Um, And yet, as I've been chatting to people this week, um, (laughs) Ruth will tell you, it was a busy start to the week for me. Um, And I've had this confirmed to me just chatting this week. um, Just because it's a... New Year doesn't mean people aren't still fighting old problems. In fact, Christmas and New Year has a way of highlighting and underscoring the problems that we have. And whether it's because there's so much family or so much pressure to have a good time, it can bring all these things to the fore and it makes it difficult. It makes it hard. And so I feel that we need to fix our hope on something. For some of you, you've lost hope and you need hope. And you may it's been tough and things aren't getting easier. And and so what I want to do is to spend the first couple of weeks of 2019 at least and just say, okay, listen to the word of God because there is hope that is sure and is steadfast and you can and need to grab hold of this. For others, you may say, well, Actually, just 2019 is shaping up pretty good for me. There's lots of exciting things happening, and um, I'm actually kind of looking forward to this. Just pause for a minute. Pause, because we need to make sure we are asking the right questions. It's not just about whether you are feeling hopeful, but what is your hope in? You may be putting your hope in the wrong place. You might be looking at your earnings or looking at your marriage or looking at your family and might be thinking, okay, yeah, I got this. This could be a really good year. This could be a really fun year. There's a, there's a good holiday lined up in the summer. I'm looking forward to this. I'm going to get fit. I'm going to get healthy. I'm going to go to the new gym every single day. The thrill of real hope is not to be found in your ability to succeed or to meet your goals. But in the person of Christ. It's not in whatever goals you've set for yourself. Whether it is the new job or the holiday or the car or the house or whatever it happens to be. That's not the point. The thrill, the boundless excitement of real hope comes only in knowing and trusting in Christ. And so whatever you're facing up to this year we can have optimism, we can have confidence, we can have hope, not because of who we are, not because of the problems around us, but because of who God is. And we set the tone for that with our Christmas messages. We we looked at the reality of the world around us, we looked at the brokenness and said, and yet there is joy, for we did not have to get to God, but God came to us. And that's exciting. That Christ would come to us, that Christ would step out of heaven, away from the adoration of angels, and come so that he might help me. That, That he might come to rescue me, that he might forgive me. That's the story of Christmas. That's the Christian message that no one is beyond the reach of God. No sin is too big, no problems too deep, no person is too far away or too big a failure for our God. Because God became flesh and came to a manger among shepherds and a teenage mother in the backwaters of a cruel and oppressive empire, there are no circumstances in which God cannot work. And let me repeat that in case you're thinking, well, yeah, that's for them, that's not for me. There are no circumstances in which God cannot. And as we said last week, because of who he is, then we can have confidence going forward, even if there is still some assembly required. Because of Christ, we have hope. He is not finished with us yet. And so in this series, we'll launch off from the Christmas truth that Christ has come to us and look at a few snapshots of his life. And why? Because of who he, he is and what he has done, we can have real hope. But it's not just a slight hope, not just a fingers crossed, hold on tight kind of a hope, but a hope that brings peace, a hope that brings confidence, but also a hope that fills and thrills us to the core. One that is more, more like expectancy. Things are tough, but I know my God is not finished with me. I, know, I don't understand what's happening, but I know it will work out for my good and for God's glory. Because I know he hasn't abandoned or forsaken me. I know that. That's the thrill of hope. And that is the hope that we have in Christ, an eternal hope, or as the girls would have heard over the last 48 hours here, the reality, the reality of being truly treasured by And so for the next few weeks, we'll look at some of these topics, all right? Hope, uh, because God knows when to show up. Hope, because God knows when to speak up. Hope, because God will hold us up. Hope, because he offered himself up. Uh, And we'll keep on on this theme of hope because of what he has done and among others. But this morning, I want to look at how God knows when to show up. I think this one most naturally slots and after Christmas he knows when to come to this. his timing is perfect. But if we're being honest, it's his timing that we most struggle with, isn't it? It's it's God's timing that we really have the big issues with God. God, why not now? Why have you not intervened yet? Why have you not saved yet? Why not have you not moved yet? Why has the answer not come yet? Why is my prayer still unanswered? What's up with your timing, God? That's what we struggle with most. Or at least maybe it's just me. But that's a real fight, isn't it? And and we would always love God just to smooth that wee bit earlier, that wee bit quicker. We'd like him to work more to our timetable than to his own. And how often are we left thinking, wow, you left that one to the last minute. So I want to take you to Matthew 14. Now, these three... um, There's bulbs in the way, but there's Capernaum, Chorazin, Bethsaida. That is a five mile square radius. And that's where Jesus spent 75% of his ministry. And it's really interesting when you think about it in this little worst part of the Roman Empire. This is not a place where kings went. This is not a place where rulers enjoyed ruling. This is certainly not a place for a Messiah. But this little area of northern Galilee is where Jesus spent most of his time. Now, it's right in the middle of three regional kingdoms, okay? You've got Galilee of the Gentiles, which is the full name of it, Galilee of the Gentiles. That was ruled by Antipas. And the Golan, which was ruled by Philip, they were brothers and sons of Herod the Great. You know, the king from the nativity story he tried to kill the baby Jesus. They're his sons, okay? And then Decapolis, which was uh, made up of 10 Greek um, sort of thinking towns or cities, and that was, that's Decapolis, 10 cities. And so this is in the middle of it. Worlds that are fundamentally opposed, right? If you want to think of it, think Arab, think Roman, think Greek. These were not Jewish strongholds. There were Jewish people there, but because of the nature of the empires rising and falling, it's very different. It's not all Jewish. And these three worlds are colliding with the Jewish world just below the Sea of Galilee. And yet when we read in Matthew 4, all right, this area here is Tiberius, where Herod Antipas is based. Here is uh, Magdala where Mary Magdalene came from. Mary Magdala, uh, Mary of the Magdalene. And so Jesus did come down these areas and come down around here. But when he was here, we read that they came from Decapolis. They came from these areas in the Golan. They all came to meet Jesus. He was transcending political boundaries. He was transcending social barriers. So even though he was working in this small area, it was a microcosm of of different worlds colliding. And they all came to meet Jesus. And it's interesting that they were drawn. Jesus Get, get this idea out of your head that Jesus was just working with really nice Jews all the time. He wasn't. He wasn't. He he wasn't working among the best of the best or the purest of Jews or the big theologians. They all, they're all they all down in Jerusalem because they wouldn't be caught dead up in Galilee. They wouldn't be caught dead up in the Golan because as, remember, well, has anything good ever came out of Nazareth? Has anything good ever came out of? So, no, not with those hicks up there. Jesus didn't work with the deserving or the good Jews. But the people that included the Gentiles, the Romans, the Greeks. And in Matthew 4, when it says that he came everywhere and he met, he healed all their sick, it means the Gentiles as well. This was a big part of the problem that people have with the Jews. He was healing people that they didn't think deserved healing. And I think it's incredible that in this little area, smaller than arts. Christ built most of his ministry. And so even in the small details of where Jesus was, there's hope for us. If he had worked to our mentality, he would beeline for Jerusalem, build up a base of support there, then launched off the room, made waves in the capital, because that's that's how you're going to influence the world, that's how you're going to save the world. Get to the capital, boom, and fly out from there. Instead, Jesus based himself in a tiny part of the world, That nobody else cared about. In a part of the world that had lost hope. This entire area is a powder keg. The rulers of these kingdoms were brothers. They hated each other. Antipas, what he did was he dumped his wife. He happened to be the daughter of the king of Syria. Not always a great move. So he was angry and he was coming at him. So what what Antipas did to make it better was, to get over his dumped wife, he stole his brother's wife, Philip's wife. Great family relations there. And they're at each other. Uh, And Rome intervened to stop an all-out civil war breaking out between them. This is the life, this is the landscape that Christ was working in. Now, John the Baptist calls Antipas out on these things. He's going, dude, you cannot go around stealing your brother's wife. That's not okay. And that's why Antipas has uh, John the Baptist imprisoned at the start of Matthew 14. It's a messed up world Jesus is working in. But Jesus shows up in hopeless places. That's what I'm getting at. Now, it shapes us up for two miracles that are going to come along. And we'll squeeze them in very quickly, the feeding of the 5,000 and walking on water. Now, we don't need to explain them too much, um, but I'm sure you know them. But I want you to see how they all tie together. So John the Baptist is a man that Jesus truly loved, a man whose family he grew up with. He's been brutally murdered by this man in this tense, sensitive, political landscape. Verse 13, now when Jesus heard this, that he had been beheaded, killed, He withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. Jesus withdrew now. Is this how you would want Jesus to respond? Is this what you would want the Messiah to do whenever something terrible happened to you? There's a great injustice. He's been brutally murdered. So what would you want from Jesus in this moment? Revenge. Smite them, Lord. Boom. Bring fire down from heaven. Maybe you've prayed that before. (laughs) Would you pray for justice? Would you pray for comfort? Pray for a miracle? (laughs) Lord, nothing's impossible for you. That wasn't fair. What happened? Bring him back to life going. Maybe he's just in a real big sleep. But Jesus withdrew. Jesus doesn't show up whenever his family need him. He withdraws. Now, if we're being honest, is that not sometimes how it feels? something terrible happens and we're looking for comfort, we're looking for justice, we're looking for answers and it feels like God is more distant than ever. And we're left wondering, why have you withdrawn? Here's the point. Well, the point is that not that Jesus leaves those who need him behind. The point is that Christ shows us that it's okay to withdraw from the crowds, from the hectic nature of life, When there is a bereavement, it's okay to take the time to mourn the loss of a loved one. Jesus is not going to go pick fights with Herod at this point. He wasn't afraid. John the Baptist wasn't afraid. Jesus certainly wasn't afraid. His time had not yet came. It was about timing. He'll stand before Herod soon enough. But his time had not yet come. Back to verse 13. But when the crowds had heard where he was, they followed him on foot from the towns. What towns? All the towns from the Golan, from Galilee, from Decapolis. They all were seeking him. They were all following him. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. They were there already. They had met him there. And he had compassion on them and healed their sick. I I love that. Christ was the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He was worshipped and adored by angels. He sat by the throne of the Father in heaven, and yet he was never demanding. You never read of him saying, Guys, would you just give me five minutes? Guys, give me 10 minutes and then I'll be with you. I need to sort myself out. Do Do you not know that I'm the one who should be served? You should be worrying about how I am. I just lost a family member. Nobody's asking me how I am. No, you don't get that. He's not worried about that. Instead, his heart is full of compassion and he responds to their needs. Not his needs. He's switching back from being an example for us to follow to showing us what kind of a saviour he really is. Folks, you know that when we come to our saviour, his heart is not full of disdain or hurt or anger towards us, but rather he is full of compassion. and he will seek to give you what you most need. It's not always the thing that we want, but he will always seek to give us what we most need. And his timing is perfect. Just watch. When it was evening. No, hold on. That's not right. Oh, well. Um, verse 15 and 16 says, Now, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place. The day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, you need not go away. You give them something to eat. Now, we know what happens. They find a boy with a couple of loaves, a couple of fish, and um, they all eat. Now, the disciples, they initially, they freeze at this thought of being told, right, you give them something to eat. We don't have anything. God, we can't do this. This is too much. Because they were overwhelmed at what they were being asked to do. What they were being asked to do was too much for them to try and comprehend. It's like, that's impossible. How many people in church this morning have got more in their to-do list than time to do it in? Hmm. Definitely put my hand up there. It's a problem the disciples have. Especially Andrew, the other gospels tell us. The problem you see that they had was they were underestimating their master and overestimating their problem. I don't know if you're guilty of doing that. That's a habit that you have. You have a problem, you overestimate the size of it, and you underestimate how big our God is. That's where you start coming on good. That's whenever you start to panic, that's when you start losing it at that point. But watch what happens when you bring it all that you have and you give it to the Saviour and you trust him in doing all that you can that the need is met. They all eat and we're satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. So that's a crowd of about 15,000 people. Just the 5,000 men were counted. Sorry, that's just how how they did it back then. Don't blame me. That's just what the Bible says. But easily then, you're talking 15,000 people. What does this miracle tell us about God? What hope does that give us when we think that God is distant? What hope does that give us when we think that he is removed and withdrawn from our problems? Well, it tells us, first of all, that God is concerned with our physical needs. Don't ever think that God uh, isn't concerned with your health. That God is, uh, is not concerned about everything else that's going on in your life. That somehow he's up in heaven and he goes, I don't care that they've got cancer. Have they sinned? I I don't care that their family's in difficulties. Did they do their quiet time? That's not the nature of our God. That's not how the the Jewish people and the God of the Jews thought. They believed in mind, body, and soul together as one. He knows what you are going through. Yes, he knows that the credit card bill is going to be due in a few weeks. And the mortgage. And you're probably going to need to get more oil. He knows that the fuel prices are going up again. He knows that you bought the two liter turbo when you really should have brought the Prius. He knows. He knows all of it. But remember what he also said on the Sermon on the Mount. He says, look at the birds of the air. Check out those birds. They don't toil, they don't worry, they don't gather in the barns. But listen to what he says. He says, yet your heavenly father feeds them. Get that? God's not the heavenly father of the birds. There's no wee birds here saying, our father who art in heaven, I thought I thought I'd put a cat. No, Birds don't think that way. They don't pray. They don't have that relationship with God. He's not their father. He's their creator. But 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 to the Christian, he is our creator, but he's also our father. Our heavenly father feeds them But are you not of more value than they? So God is concerned about your physical needs. Romans 8.32, we looked at this last week. If God did not spare his own son but gave him up for us, how shall he not with him freely give us all things? Provision. God cares about your physical needs. Now here's the second lesson. God uses small things to do great things. There's a reason to have hope. God will use the small things to do great things. When the boy's mom was packing that little lunch in his kitchen, said, "Mummy, Mummy, can I go see Jesus? Can I see? Oh, you can't go out there by yourself. Make sure you got your coat. If you brush your teeth, right, I'll make you a wee pack lunch. Because that's what that's what was do. And uh, I bet she had no idea that as she put little bits of pillar bread and a couple of little pickled fish, into a, I don't know or something. She wasn't thinking that this was going to feed fifteen thousand people. What made the difference? Jesus' hands made all the difference. You take a little and you put it in the hands of an all-powerful God, and you've got a lot. That's the math of the miracle. Loaves and fish. Five plus two equals not an awful lot. But five plus two plus Jesus, anything can happen. That's the math of a miracle. That's the hope we can have when Jesus shows up. Now, I want to apply that to your life. It could be, and I don't know, but it could be that for some reason you haven't got involved yet in, in some of the things in the church. You've stand ba- stood back from small groups. You've stood back from membership. You've stood back from... Uh, get, in, using your gifts in the church for some reason, and maybe you're saying, yeah, but I'm not all that talented. I can be up on that stage. I can't play an instrument. I don't have the gifts or the talents, or I'm not that way inclined. How dare you deprecate God's property? You belong to God. The issue isn't how great you are. It is always, 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 but how great God is And so don't get, don't lose that. You put yourself in God's hands and you've got something explosive and something mighty and something powerful. And so you've got to try that. God can take a little and make it a lot. And if all you can do in your difficulties, in your trials, in your stress, in your worry, in your anxiety, if all you can do is a little say, say, oh, I, I like half this little thing. Do it. Do it and let God turn that into something mighty. Let God take care of the rest. In fact, you'll find that when you read the Bible, God prefers to use the simple to confound the wise so that the glory always goes to him. So you think you're not worthy to be used. Then you're just the person that God wants to use. There is hope for you in that this year. Third lesson, we'll move quickly on so we can finish this up, is that God's provision goes a long way. You'll notice in verse 20, they ate and were satisfied. They were filled. Now, we know how that feels, right? Coming after Christmas and New Year, all right? We've all been filled a couple of times. Probably still a wee bit filled. Um, Ruth and I have been talking about starting to eat healthy, so we've had to get rid of all the unhealthy food in our house. It was delicious. Um, stuffed. But how many baskets did they take up? How many? Twelve. How many apostles were there? Twelve. So they all had lunch the next day. God is economical. God makes the provision go a long way. God only pulled off one really cool miracle, but he did exceedingly and abundantly above all that they could ask or think. He didn't just feed the 15,000. They he also fed his own again the next day. Now, when I say exceedingly and abundantly, that doesn't mean that they had gourmet the next day for lunch. You'll take care of your needs, not your greets. They had overestimated their problem. They had underestimated their God. Listen to what David wrote in Psalm 37. "I was young." And now I am old. But I have never seen the righteous forsaken or God's children begging bread. There's hope for you in this. God knows when to show up, for he never left. The issue is timing, and he is waiting for the right time to move. And when he does, you will find him abundantly generous and a heart full of compassion for you. God promises to take care of his own. And provision will be in his time, and it will go a long way. Speaking of his time, let's go to verse 22 very quickly. Immediately, he made the disciples go. Now, it makes it sound like they didn't really want to go. All right, The things that, you know, oh, Jesus, just let, must, I'm full. Let me just, we'll, we'll sleep here tonight. We'll, we'll go early in the morning, all right? Because that's what happens when you're stuffed, right? I just need to eat nap. Just, just let me nap. But no, Jesus like, oh, guys, get in the boat. Get in the boat. You have to go now. He makes them get in the boat. The King James says he constrained them. He compelled them. Get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. So everyone's still there. He's saying, guys, you go. I'll take care of this law." And after he dismissed the crowds, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. So when evening came. So that, it wasn't evening yet when he sends the guys onto the boat. It's now evening, so it's a couple of hours later. He's there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And the fourth watch of the night came. Uh, He came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost! And they cried out in fear, but immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Here's my big point, because I know I'm running out of time. Jesus made them get into the boat. Did Jesus know that a storm would come? Well, he's Jesus, so yes, he did know that the storm was coming. So why did he make them get into the boat and not go with them? It's a bad storm. To have seasoned fishermen out on the sea laboring for this long length of time, they're afraid. It takes a lot to make these guys afraid. They were fishermen. They fished the sea. They know the sea. They know these boats. They lived there. They work it. They do this for a living. But verse 25, now in the fourth watch, Jesus came to them. In Jewish kind of military, and things, there was four watches for, for the guards to keep. So 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. was the first watch. Second watch was 9 p.m. to midnight. Third watch is midnight to 3 a.m. The fourth watch, 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. Now, these guys have been out in the sea before evening, and it's now somewhere between 3 and 6 in the morning. They've been fighting this storm for a long time. Maybe eight hours. That's a long time to be afraid. That's a long time thinking that you're going to drown. Let me ask you the question. Could Jesus have came a wee bit sooner? Did he have to wait the eight hours? Could he have came after 30 minutes? Jesus, we're scared. We're done. Let's go home. Yeah, okay, let's go. Okay, you got the point. I, I can control the seas. No. But why did he have to wait so long? You, you've asked this question, all right? In the storm, and your trials, Lord... Why do you have to go to the very last minute? Why is it always the fourth watch? Why, why don't you, you work sooner? Why don't you work quicker? Why is it so last minute? And we struggle. And we struggle to believe that he'll come. But he shows up in his time. At just that time when you think that there's no way. It's not humanly possible that we're going to get out of this on our own. But he shows up and it's abundantly clear that it's God who has shown up. He came in the fourth watch of the night and no sinner. We wish it would be sinner, but know this. If you're in the storm, God has his eye on your boat. And his hand is on the waves. He is not going to let you sink. The question is, why did Jesus walk on the water? To show off? Hey guys, watch what I can do. Check out this cool trick. I think something that I realized this week was he came to them on the thing that they were most afraid of. They feared the storm. The storm was going to take their life. It was going to take all of them. That storm was going to kill them. And Jesus came to them on what they feared the most. I mean, how we fear pain how we fear sorrow, how we fear loneliness and death of a loved one or or, or how we fear being isolated, how we fear all these things and we think, okay, God, no, 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 this is too much. This is going to kill me. This is too much for me and yet we find so often that the Lord makes that storm his footpath and comes to us in his abundant presence on the thing that we fear the most and it's in those Moments we feel so close to God. When Ruth was diagnosed with MS, he came in that storm. Whenever there has been bereavements, people have said, I, I feel his presence in the storm. And I know that there are others in this room who have shared stories. In the trials, God has shown up and made the storm his footpath. Have you lost hope? Keep your eyes open. Christ is working and you will see it soon, I promise. He knows what he is doing in the storms that he sends your way. And because Jesus made them get into the boat or constrained them to get into the boat, compelled them, get in that boat, get out onto that ocean. What it means is that they were in that storm by the will of God. All right, so forget all this sometimes. Oh, well, you're going through the storm because you've done something wrong. Or you're there because you've sinned and, you you know, that's what Job's comforters did. Job, you must... <laughs> no, 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 no. You've done something wrong. Confess, confess. Say, like, No. We know that wasn't what happened with Job. We know that hasn't happened with the disciples. They were there by the will of God. They were exactly where God wanted them to be. Because he wanted the storm to come their way. And that's a tough one. But I think it also revolutionizes our periods of pain whenever we realize it you realize that you're not in your storm by happenstance, that this isn't just something that came because God has distanced himself, but rather you're there by the will of God and God is going to, by his will, get me through this, it changes everything. It changes everything. It changed the whole plane whenever I realized this. And then Jesus says in verse 27, be of good cheer. It sounds a wee bit out of place. These guys are clinging on for dear life. They, they're convinced. They're a little fishing boat. And if you've been to Israel, they're both, it, it's like a plank of wood with a ridge. They're, they're, not, they're very shallow. Uh, and they're not very, it <laughs> won't take too much to capsize that. And they're convinced that they're going to die. And he says, cheer up lads. It feels strange. Until the next sentence comes, and then, then it makes perfect sense. It is I. It's Jesus. Okay, now that makes sense. I can cheer up. It is I. I don't need to be afraid anymore. Things change when you see Christ in the middle of the storm. Peter wasn't convinced though. Lord, if it's you. Like, who else is it going to be? He's walking on the water. Anyway. He gets out, and again, he starts to think about how people, you know, aren't actually biologically designed to walk on water. And it's the same thing. He starts overestimating his problem and underestimating our God. And you say, Jeff, but notice the storm is still going. Jesus has showed up, and things haven't changed yet. Things haven't actually changed anything. Jesus is there, and not it hasn't made a bit of difference. Peter's acting in faith, but the storm's still there. That's why it's acting in faith. We act trusting in God, even though the storm is still there. That's why it's faith. Jesus hasn't changed anything yet. Where's the hope when he shows up and things are still scary? When he shows up and things are still terrifying? He shows up when things are still threatening. What do we do then? We hope in the reality that Christ is still there. The confidence comes when we see Christ for who he really is. There in control. In control of the storm. Even in control of the things that we wouldn't even think about trying to control. You know, like water displacement. Yet he's walking on it. It's not only under his control but it is under his foot and once the men in the boat learned that they could trust Christ in the storm then the storm died down notice the sequence there you learn to trust Christ in the storm and you start to get your hope in Christ while the storm is going and you'll find that the storm gets smaller then. I bet they had a lot of questions about God's timing. I'm sure once they got in that boat, they dried off. And I'm sure some of them, maybe Judas or Thomas or someone, was like, so Jesus, seriously, what was all that about? What are you doing to this? What, What was this to prove? What are you trying to show me? I can only say that in 2019 we will all, at some points, probably have a few questions about God's timing ourselves. And there'll be times in our quiet time when we'll say, Lord, what are you trying to show me in this? What, what are you trying to teach me in this? What, I don't understand, Lord. Why can't you do this a wee bit quicker? Why can't this happen a wee bit more on my timeline? And we may have many more questions about God's timing. But in those times, when we feel as if God is distant or withdrawing from us, seek Him. You will find Him a compassionate and willing to meet our needs if we hand it all over to Him. And even when those storms are His will for our life, we will see He is sovereign and trustworthy in those times which means that this year we can hope in the Lord who shows up at just the right time. We may not think it's the right time, but it is the right time. And we can hope in the one who shows up and make the difference in our lives. We can hope in the God who controls the things that we can't even think about controlling. And we can say with David in the psalm, that even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who brings hope into hopeless